for Swordplay. Alex, Florida Parks and Recreation director plays the song Baby Shark on repeat outside of the West Palm Beach Waterfront Pavilion in the hopes that it will deter homeless people from sleeping near the property. Would this deter you if you were homeless, Alex? Are you kidding me, Nick? I got three kids. This is what I call state-funded vacation Bible school. Such a deterrence wouldn't work on this daddy shark. do 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 Oh, man. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the News Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let that be a reminder to the audience. Go back and read 1 Thessalonians. When you get to chapter 4, read over it, come back, listen to the podcast, and that way you can follow along and listen to the questions. So we'll get started here in verse 3. Nick, big question here. What is God's will for my life? Yeah, big question. A lot of people ask this question. Um, They want to know, what is God's will for my life? Um, And usually when we ask that question, we... People usually wonder about, you know, should I buy a this car or should I buy that car? Should I uh, live here or live there? Should I um, marry this person or that? Um, here's the bottom line. In verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. And it is just that simple and complex as that. Uh, That is, God wants you to be holy, specifically in this context to abstain from sexual sin, to control your body in a holy and honorable way. And look, we we can complicate God's will for our lives, but the bottom line is, this is what God wants from you. And I think... The message for us is, if you get this thing down, it's a big thing, your sanctification. That's not a small thing. It's a big thing. You get that nailed down, these other smaller things, I think they'll fall into place. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're right, Nick. This is one of those big picture words, sanctification. And that word provides the umbrella through which Paul makes application regarding the Thessalonians' sexual purity. Now, we're called to be conformed into the image of Christ, and through the transformation of our minds, we become better equipped to discern God's will. That's Romans 8.29 and Romans 12.2. But in other words, all of those specific moments where we wish someone would tell us what to do, what is God's will here? Those moments are navigated better the more the Christian has undergone the sanctification process. Paul felt it necessary to remind them then, Uh, perhaps in the face of temptation, their pagan environment, that honoring God with one's body is a work of sanctification. So let's unpack that a little bit more, Nick. What exactly is sanctification? Well, from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, uh, under their uh, entry for sanctification, it says to set a person or a thing apart for the use intended by its designer. And so as it's applied to people, we are sanctified when we live according to God's design and purpose. Or better yet, 
We are set apart for the progressive work of the Holy Spirit. And so, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit, he works in us to bring holiness to completion. That's the sanctification by the Spirit over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. While at the same time, we make it our aim to live a holy Christian life. That is bringing holiness to completion or perfecting holiness, as the NIV says, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And so I see here a picture. It's uh, synergistic. Uh, that is, we cooperate with the glorious work of the Spirit. Uh, the process also is progressive. Uh, you get more and more of it. You go grow deeper and deeper into it. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, righteousness leads to sanctification. Uh, what say you, Alex? Yeah, I think you're right. It's progressive. Uh, it's a cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit. I want to dig into the uh, original language here a little bit. The word used here is the Greek word hagiosmos. And it's used 10 times in the, in the New Testament. Three of them happen right here in this short little section. Hagiosmos is used in the New Testament to describe the process and result of being made holy, just as you were describing, Nick. Now, the audience may remember from last week's podcast on 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where we discussed the word saints. You know, who are the saints? Well, that's the Greek word hagios. Sounds like hagiosmos, the word we're talking about here. Hagios literally means holy ones. Also, we discussed the word holiness from the Greek hagiosune. So those are all similar. Hagiosmos, hagios, hagiosune. And hagiosune, I suggested, takes on the meaning of sacred space or the holy place or the sanctuary. Think of it that way. So to summarize it just for a reminder for the audience, holy ones are those who are already fit to occupy sacred space before Yahweh and Christ Jesus. Holiness is the location or sacred space in which God's presence dwells or is made known. And sanctification, or one could say holification, which is the process we undergo to become sacred space or part of God's sanctuary. That's our transformation. Through holification, then, we become fit for occupying holiness, which then gives us the status of being one of the holy ones. This is why the writer of Hebrews 12, 14 so adamantly says to Christians to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see God. So we have holy ones, holiness, and holification or sanctification. Any thoughts, Nick? I think we've upholstered that subject quite nicely. <laughs> well upholstered. <laughs> well, verse 4, moving along in this uh, can, you know, conversation about sexual purity, Paul says something about controlling or um, their, having, having possession of their own vessel. What is the vessel that Paul refers to here in verse 4? Yeah, my, my ESV says body. Um, literally, it does say vessel or container or object. Um, but it, this seems to be a figure, uh, a metaphor. It was a pottery term that was used for like jars or bowls. And it's this kind of imagery that abounds in scripture. People are the clay and they are shaped by the potter into a particular 
vessel, a particular container. Uh, you can see Jeremiah chapter 18, but especially Romans 9, verses 21 through 23, Paul really keys in on that vessel language there. Um, but that's that seems to be what's in back of that, and I think that's uh, why I prefer the ESV reading there as body. You want to control your own body um, that, uh, that the potter has created. Uh, but uh, there is another way of looking at this, isn't there, Alex? Yeah, I would agree that it, it should be read body. That's the correct interpretation. The NASB has a footnote that recommends the understanding to be either one's body or even one's wife. Now that latter suggestion, it comes from 1 Peter 3, 7, where the wife is called a weaker vessel, so that the husband then must take the initiative to be more understanding. Um, and I can see where they get that, especially with where these next verses are going here in verse 6 about defrauding one's brother in the context of sexual purity. So it's a possibility, but I think that, uh, you know, the conclusion that vessel can then mean wife uh, may be a little bit more of an interpretive jump uh, since it's clearly referring to a body. So, yeah, vessel here means body. Nick, I think your examples are spot on. All right. Uh, verse 6 then, uh, Paul writes that uh, no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. <clears throat> um, let's talk a moment for about this matter, Alex. What matter is Paul referencing when he's talking here about wronging or defrauding one's brother? Yeah, this is uh, somewhat vague, the way he words this. In this matter, don't defraud your brother. Um Sometimes Paul does that, especially when speaking about sexual sin. He doesn't uh, go into too much specifics. Uh, if you remember, there's a passage in Ephesians where he talks about how um, there are certain things that are uh, that people do in the darkness that are too embarrassing to even mention. Now, if we're going to be consistent with the context, then it seems that Paul is referring to sexual immorality, and since the word sexual immorality here is the Greek word poinaia, uh, that's a broad term referring to all forms of illicit sexual intercourse. So that would include adultery. So sleeping with your brother's wife, uh, fellow Christians no less, is what the NASB translated here as defrauding. Every other passage that translates this word here from the original language uh, it doesn't translate it as defrauding. It translates it as taking advantage of. One could say that within these closer communities, especially a Christian community like the Thessalonians that may be banding together even closer because of persecution, uh, that type of environment would create opportunity for evil men with false motives to enter, take advantage of women, and thus defraud uh, their brother. You may remember our podcast on 2 Peter 2.14 where certain false teachers were said to have eyes full of adultery, enticing unstable souls. Or in 2 Timothy 3.6 where similar men are described as entering into the households of an enticing weak women weighed down with sins and led by various impulses. Uh, that's what I think is going on here when Paul says we don't defraud one another um, we don't take advantage of our brother that way. We, we stay sexually pure. 
We stay faithful to our own spouse. What do you think, Nick? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right on the money. Just one other view that is uh, espoused by some commentators that you may run into in your own personal study is that uh, this matter um, is, uh, when it's used in conjunction with uh, wronging or defrauding or taking advantage of a brother, uh, that in other contexts it has to do with business practices. And so there is a view that's out there that this you don't want to defraud or wrong your brother when it pertains to business matters. Um, that's Again, that's out there. That's true, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is true. Um, honest weights and scales and all that. Um, but it seems like contextually here, uh, it's exactly what you're talking about, Alex. Right, uh, right. The rest of verse 6 says, um, here's, here's the reason you don't want to transgress or defraud your brother. It's because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, the Lord is an avenger. But Paul is talking to Christians here. Alex, does, does that mean that the Lord exacts vengeance upon his own people? Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. That's Otherwise, Paul would have uh, not needed to emphasize the fact that he had already solemnly warned them concerning these things. If God's not going to take vengeance even upon his own people who transgress his law, then there's no need to warn the people about these things. Look at the context. Paul says it's one thing for the Gentiles to act like this. That's to be expected. But for the Christian to act this way is truly horrific. God will avenge the one who was defrauded, the one who was taken advantage of, the victims of these adulterous relationships. And that's a good reminder for us today. Our first reaction to sin in the church should not be, how can we reconcile the sinner, which may be appropriate later upon repentance, but first and foremost concern should always be for the victims of such sin, especially sexual sin. This priority of care and concern for the victim reflects the heart of our God, who is the avenger of his people, even against those who claim to be his people. Yeah, you've got a <clears throat> excuse me, you got an old testament, a whole old testament full of examples where God brought judgment, brought vengeance upon even his own people. Um, and so the principle still applies today, um, even under the new covenant, uh, even those in the church, um, even for them, the Lord's judgment is inescapable. If those, uh, I think it's scalable, the church member, even a whole church, uh, if they have violated the commands of the Lord, if they have wronged their siblings in any way. So uh, you're right on the money with that, Alex. <clears throat> well, what do we have here in verse 7? Well, God, Paul writes, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Impurity there, Alex, we want to key in on that word. What is impurity? The word uh, impurity pops up frequently in the New Testament and usually alongside other words uh, in combination with immorality and sensuality. The word carries with it the idea of uncleanness, uh, vileness, immoral intentions, 
corruption. But all of those things, uh, especially when this word pops up, as they pertain to sexual sins. Paul used this word earlier in chapter 2, verse 3, when defending his own intentions for exhorting them. It was without impurity. In other words, Paul didn't have this side motive, these hidden motives, to take advantage of any women or to steal someone's wife. Here he says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. In other words, we cannot use good as a cover for evil. I believe that's in another part of the New Testament. Practicing sexual purity, then, is an important part of our sanctification process. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, I think that's I think that's right on the money. Well, Nick, uh, verse 8 mentions the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and... Um, God is the one who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Um, do we have the Holy Spirit, Nick? Yeah, that, so there are some who belong to what is called the representative view. That is, uh, they view the Holy Spirit. He only dwells in Christians representatively through the Word of God. In other words, uh, the Bible. Um. That is not what Paul says, though. Not just here, but anywhere you read about him talking about Christians having the Holy Spirit, um, it is all, it's, it's never this representative view. I think it's true that uh, uh, it, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired word, and it is still a living and active word. But we do, we truly have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence within us. Uh, so, yes, we, we do have the Holy Spirit. What do you think, Alex? I agreed. Um, the Spirit uh, does work through the Word, but not only through the Word. Right. And how the Spirit works doesn't exactly determine the presence of the Spirit being with us or not. That seems like a separate matter Uh, altogether. Although one aspect of the Holy Spirit that I think gets missed sometimes is the corporate dwelling of the Holy Spirit with Mm. each congregation, which, you know, doesn't necessarily deny the individual dwelling. It could be a both and. There's something uniting, though, about reflecting upon the Spirit being with us collectively, especially as we gather together for mutual edification. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, that uh, that you there who gives his Holy Spirit to you is a plural pronoun. Right. So that's, that's a good catch there right. um, about the corporate nature. of. The, he's given his spirit to all y'all. All y'alls. <laughs> um, it's good Greek. Bad so related, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Related to this, verse 8, um, he says he gives his Holy Spirit to you, to all y'all. So when, how and when did God give these Christians the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I would say that God's Spirit has been with his people since the beginning of creation. Now, let me build this up for you. If you remember Genesis 1, the Spirit hovered over the waters on the first day. Later, as we move through the narrative of the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit dwell in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. Uh, We see in the New Testament the Spirit was with Jesus in his baptism, and dare I say, 
the Spirit hovers over the waters of our own baptism as we are recreated in the waters to be raised up in newness of life. Now, of course, uh, a worldwide temple, unlike the singular location of the Jerusalem temple, that would necessarily require a greater portion of the Holy Spirit, and thus we see a pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 for the Jews, and later again in Acts chapter 10 for the Gentiles. As the body of Christ grows, so the Spirit fills the body, which is us, the church. So in a sense, the Spirit has always been in the world, but we, specifically Christians, we were filled with the Spirit upon our baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, that's, that's a, an excellent, uh, excellent coverage all around. The only thing I would add is that the New Testament speaks univocally about baptism being the point at which we receive uh, the, the Holy Spirit. That would be the when, and I suppose in some sense the how, that when we by faith approach the waters of baptism, not only do we get all the other blessings and benefits, um, forgiveness of sins, as you mentioned there in Acts 2.38, uh, but we also receive the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence. He abides in us. And um, I like the image there of, you know, since it's a worldwide temple, we have a under the New Covenant, a greater uh, portion, a greater pouring out of the Spirit. Uh, but I would just add to that also, it, the supply is inexhaustible <laughs> uh, when it comes to the Holy Spirit and Him being uh, given to each person. In other words, we're not going to run out of Holy Spirit filling, right? <laughs> right, we're, right, there's, right? There's plenty to go around. All are welcome to come and drink from. Uh, that river of life. So that's right. It's uh, interesting to think about when you're you, when you were baptized. You know that that's that's creation language. Your new creation, and man, this the spirit's involved in that regeneration process. And that uh, that's Genesis one, man. That's in the beginning. Now it's a new beginning. <laughs> right, right. Well, Nick, in verse nine, how had the Thessalonians been taught by God concerning uh, loving one another. Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, and so Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And it's that phrase there, taught by God, which is actually a single word in the original. Literally, they are God-taught, um, is, is how that could be translated. It's a word that some believe Paul uh, coined this ver- this uh, this word uh, he's the actual he's the one who who came up with it and a couple of the arguments for that is one it's the only appearance of this word in the New Testament and second uh, it is the earliest known occurrence of this word in Greek literature Wow uh, so yeah uh, Paul making up words well <laughs> Shakespeare action back in his day. But um, so to be taught by God or taught by Yahweh, to be taught by the Lord, is actually a concept that's found in Isaiah 54. 
and verse 13. They will all be taught by Yahweh. And Jesus quotes that in John chapter 6 and verse 45. They will all be taught by God. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> how, does that, how does that God teaching take place? Well, of course, under the New Covenant, as we just discussed with the previous couple of questions, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, I believe it belongs in this discussion. The context here about God, he gives his Holy Spirit to you uh, right there at the end of verse 8, then it flows right into verse 9 here, which we're talking about. It seems right. likely that what Paul has in mind is that Christians... To be taught by God means they are taught by the Holy Spirit of God concerning what it means to love one another right. and to achieve new and even different levels of what love one another looks like and fulfilling that that command. Uh, what about you, Alex? What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. It seems like Paul coins this term, theodidic toy, um, Sounds scrumptious lesson, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> I found another place where this word is used, and it's in the Apostolic Fathers, which of course is after the Apostles. So this would be in the Epistle of Barnabas, verse uh, 6 of chapter 21. It says, Be instructed by God. That's that word, theodidic toy. And it says, Be instructed by God, seeking out what the Lord seeks from you, and then do it, in order that you may be found in the day of judgment. <laughs> Gotta love that. Seek out what the Lord seeks from you, and then do it. <laughs> it's original, original Nike slogan or something. I know it's 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 so straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. Now, considering the numerous references in First Thessalonians to the return of Christ, every chapter, and earlier references in chapter one to their labor of love, I would only add that it seems the Thessalonians still had to strive with great effort, and the Spirit did not simply zap them into a state of sanctification so that they would love one another, but the Spirit assists them in the process. Dare I say, He is the helper, and this process prepares us for the day of judgment. So here we have another integral part of our sanctification process, that is, loving one another. And theodictoi, uh, doesn't mean that uh, we don't still have to seek out what the Lord seeks from us and then do it. Any thoughts, Nick? No, it's, yeah, we're, I think we're clicking on all cylinders with that. All right. Now, verse 11, Nick, it mentions the Christian making it his ambition to lead a quiet life. Well, what does it look like then for a Christian to lead a quiet life? Yeah, make it your ambition or aspire to live quietly or to live a quiet life. I mean, what a paradox, just uh, just reading that phrase in a straightforward way. Normally those who have ambition are loud or vocal about it. I think about politics, those who are aspiring for office, those who have ambitions of being somebody in the political realm. They make stump speeches, they hold rallies, they're on the campaign trail, talking with all kinds of people, anybody and everybody. But the ambitions of Christians are different, and they should be for quiet simplicity. Christians don't get bogged down in the affairs of the world. Instead, there is but one thing that we should be vocal about, and that is the gospel. Hmm. 
And see uh, Romans 15, verse 24, uh, Paul talking about being vocal about the gospel, making it his ambition to preach the gospel. And so I think this goes also along with the rest of the verse, uh, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you. Um, mind your own affairs, or mind your own business, um, <laughs> right. is what another translation says, or as we used to say as kids, mind your own beeswax, right? Don't pry intrusively, obtrusively into other people, people's affairs, their matters, their, even their secret matters. Um, if you're being obnoxious, if you're meddling other people's affairs, uh, or if you're lazy, you're not working with your hands, uh, that does not commend you to the non-Christian. There's nothing good about that that they're seeing. So we should strive to be a positive force in society, doing all that we can do faithfully, uh, adorning the doctrine, all those different things. I think that all goes into aspiring to live a quiet life. Um, what say you, Alex? Yeah, I agree. And just to kind of dovetail into what you were saying, the phrase here, to lead a quiet life, is actually just one word in the Greek, and it carries with it the idea of living peaceably. The Thessalonians, you know, especially in the face of increasing persecution, the last thing they needed was to be known for causing trouble. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's what Paul is getting at here as well. In other words, stay under the radar, keep your nose clean, don't get noticed by the authorities unnecessarily. You know, unlike the Jewish zealots or the Sicarii, Christians in the first century were not a band of religio-political assassins or revolutionaries. Paul already mentioned what the Thessalonian Christians were known for in chapter 1. They were known for enduring persecution and sounding forth the word of the Lord. And I think that's uh, definitely a note that we could take for Christians today. I like your application that you made there with... Uh, being loud and vocal, especially in the realm of politics, things like that. Hmm. So the end of verse 12, we want to walk properly before outsiders. Verse 12 says, the end of verse 12 says, my ESV says, and be dependent on no one. I believe your New American Standard says that we not be in any need. Uh, so Alex, talk for a second here. Is it, is it wrong to be in need? Right. You know, we have... Scores of passages that talk about the uh, ministry and gift of giving and receiving. So I would say it's only wrong to be in need if it is unnecessarily so. In other words, if you can work but choose not to, then obviously you are in the wrong. And you're setting a bad example for non-believers. Paul hits on this again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-13. through 13. We covered that in our podcast. Go to the archives for that. There Paul says that if anyone is not willing to work, then he shall not eat. What? What? Paul, that's so... Where's your mercy? Where's your grace? Yeah. Listen, one of Paul's reasons for not accepting any support from the Thessalonians while among them was to set an example for them that by working hard, one can support themselves and others who are truly in need. Truly in need. Not the busybodies who lead an undisciplined life, as he says. What do you think, Nick? So many um, so many calls in uh, Paul's writing about not being lazy, about being industrious, um, about working with your hands and things like that. Um, it, it could leave the impression 
that, yeah, there is something morally wrong with being in need, being impoverished in and of itself, but that simply isn't the case, as you point out. I, I like the way sure, that you put that. Sure, And we don't want to go the opposite extreme either, right? We don't want to be workaholics, neglect our greater ministry of um, in our marriage or to our families. Right. But there's definitely a balance to be held there, and we strive for that as Christians. You know, we don't want to be totally independent. We want to be interdependent, right? We are of use and... Um, in uh, to God, but we also rely upon God. We are of use to the church, but we also rely upon the church. That I think you used the word synergistic earlier. Yeah. I think that captures it. Well, Nick, in this next section, then, as we enter into uh, verses 13 through 18, why do you think Paul is about to engage in this long excursus concerning the return of Christ? Well, there's a, a couple of possibilities. Um, one is like at Corinth. Corinth, they had an issue with people who were, even some of the brethren it seemed, they were denying the resurrection. So kind of like that situation, perhaps that was what was going on here in Thessalonica. You had some resurrection deniers uh, who were on the scene, even among the Thessalonian brethren. And so Paul may be setting the record straight there. Uh, it's possible, but, I mean, his argument in 1 Corinthians 15, where he actually addresses those resurrection deniers head-on, is uh, a bit more sophisticated than it is here, and he, he really doesn't hammer home the, hey, what happens if there is no resurrection point? So uh, that has that working against that first option. But more likely are, uh, is option two, which is that there were those who were saying, hey, you guys missed Jesus coming back. You missed the return. And Paul really hammers this point home in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and talking about, you know, you're not you're going to know when Jesus comes back, all right? Right. <laughs> um, and some, some other things have to happen first before that takes place. And so uh, that, that seems more likely. The most likely for me is that the Thessalonian brethren, they had some questions about their dead loved ones. And, uh, you know, here, since they're dead, well, what happens if Jesus comes back? Uh, are they going to make it too? Or, or did they miss the Jesus bus because they died? And so Paul works to correct those ideas here uh, in these verses, verses 13 through 18. Uh, designed, as he says in verse 18, to encourage them that... No, they haven't missed the Jesus bus when Jesus comes back. In fact, they get front row tickets, front row seats on the the way to heaven, as it were. So uh, that's that's what I see here. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Options two and three that you laid out, uh, that seems like a good fit for the context. And even as you were talking there, I was wondering, I was like, well, why would they think that they missed the Jesus bus. And I wonder if there, uh, even among the first century church, were, was some confusion between the uh, difference between Christ returning uh, in judgment upon Jerusalem and Christ returning uh, for the day of judgment and resurrection. And so he did say, you know, some of you will uh, not die before uh, all these things happen. And so there could have been some confusion there. It's like, well, a bunch of us have died now. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's going yeah. on? So uh, verse 13 then, Nick, mm -hmm. uh, talking about their dead loved ones. Um, 
it says that they've already fallen asleep, you know, so where, where are those who have already fallen asleep? Where do they go? I actually preached a, a whole sermon on where we go when we die last year. Uh, it was part of a, a larger theme for the year, but where do we go when we die? A lot of people wonder about that, have questions about that. In brief, uh, not to rehearse a 30- to 40-minute sermon again, <laughs> my take is in the Old Testament, they called it Sheol. Right. In the New Testament, they called it Hades. Mm-hmm. And that is the unseen realm of disembodied spirits or disembodied souls. That's what happens when we die, by the way, is uh, the body and the spirit they are separate. The body without the spirit is dead, says James in James 2. So your spirit leaves, it departs the body. Uh, A a picture of this is uh, in the book of Genesis. I can't think of the precise chapter off the top of my head. I want to say 32, but it's where Rachel is dying. And it says her spirit was leaving her. Um, That's a picture of death. That Even way back then, they still had that that view, uh, that understanding about uh, what death is. There, when it comes to the Hadean realm, that unseen realm of disembodied spirits, there's a good side and there's a bad side, according to Jesus in Luke 16, verse 19, as he tells a parable there, he uh, paints a picture of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, yeah. The rich rich man's gone to the bad side, Lazarus has gone to the good side. Um, Talk about that more here in a minute with a different question, but... I think logically it follows that if there are both good people and evil people and they all go to the same place, and it's understood that they do, there must be a distinction between a good place and a bad place for right. the good people to go and the evil people to go respectively. So, yeah, I think that's what happens when we die, where we go when we have fallen asleep. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I completely agree. I think, um, I think if Sheol or Hades as a type of holding place until the resurrection. And I would just add that there may even be more nuanced uh, territories in this realm with more than just two sides, but actually several places. Uh, Obviously the best space being Abraham's bosom or paradise where Lazarus goes. Uh, That's a place for the righteous. And the worst pit uh, place in Hades, though, is a place called the Pit, and uh, think uh, Supermax security prison for fallen angels, but uh, inside of a hole in the ground, still in the underworld. Uh, but the hole is another uh, several hundred or several thousand miles deep. I believe Second Peter chapter 2 refers to it as Tartarus. And in the cosmology of the ancient Near East, uh, Sheol, which is the Hebrew, Hades, which is the Greek, um, that was a place that was underneath the earth, and that's what was part of their three-tiered cosmology. Heaven, earth, under the earth. That's why we have phrases in our Bible that talk about in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, they believe that they were actual you know, points of connection to the earth and the underworld. And those connections usually uh, involved caves and spaces that were infamous for supernatural evil and dangerous to venture into. So it's no wonder these converts to Christianity would be concerned for the current state of their disembodied loved ones. Um, It was not a a rosy picture, the afterlife or the realm of disembodied spirits. 
any thoughts there, Nick? Yeah, no, I like the the Supermax security uh, prison for the pit. Yeah, is that like the that one prison that they put Bruce Wayne in in <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises, and he has to climb out of it? That's right. Actually, kind of like that. That that is a, a good archetype. Good catch there. Pop culture catch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Nick, um, this whole phrase though, falling asleep. Um, I've heard of this idea called soul sleep. Will you unpack that, Nick? What is the idea of soul sleep, and is it even biblical? Yeah, so the, the doctrine of soul sleep says that when you die, your soul is disembodied. And so far, so good. I'm okay with that. Soul is disembodied, and it sleeps. Uh, that is, it is unconscious. It is unaware of anything. And that's where, for me, the train kind of goes off the rails. Um, just like when you go to sleep, here's the illustration. Just like when you go to sleep at night and you're unconscious, you're unaware of the things that are happening around you for several hours, well, that's that's what it's like for your soul. Uh, that's what you will do when you fall asleep, that common figure in the Bible for death. Uh, so scriptural support would be fall asleep, right, those who have fallen asleep. But also Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5 says that the dead know nothing. And so there you go. They they're just uh, they're no nothings in a place where they are sleeping in a disembodied state. Okay, biblically, this is inaccurate. Right. I, I believe this is an incorrect doctrine. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as I referenced earlier. Right. They were both in conscious states after death. Right. The rich man. They're both in Hades, right? And so they're. This is after they've died. The rich man is in torment, Lazarus is in comfort, and they are both aware of that. They are con- and and um, the rich man even has this conversation with Abraham about, hey, send send someone, send Lazarus, go talk to my brothers, and um, so that militates against the doctrine of soul sleep. Also, in the Revelation vision that John has, uh, chapter six. John sees souls under the altar of God, and they are these are martyrs of the persecution, and they are conscious of the suffering of their brethren, so much so that they ask, how long? How long are you going to let this go on, God? So either they are sleep-talking, <laughs> or they were conscious even after death and were aware of what things that were happening even in this physical realm, even though they've gone on. So... I think all that militates against the doctrine of soul sleep. I don't think it's a biblical concept. What say you? Yeah, you mentioned the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, That might not even be a parable. I mean, if it is, Mm. it's pretty unique because it's the only parable where people are actually named. Right. No other parable has that. And let's say it is a parable. Um, It's certainly difficult to uh, have a parable make any kind of impact if it has no basis in reality. Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, it would be like me trying to teach you through a parable of um, dogs playing poker on Mars. It's like (laughs) that (laughs) has no basis in reality. It's a little bit more of a stretch to uh, teach you anything important. So I think you're right there. Um, Now, even in the Old Testament, the saying for death was to be gathered to one's father's. Well, sleeping doesn't really make for much of a reunion. 
And apparently people, they did expect to see their dead relatives. So I think soul sleep is untenable both for the Old Testament and New Testament um, for all the reasons you mentioned and more. So just thought we'd bring that out for our audience in case they weren't um, acquainted with that idea yet. Well, Nick, uh, verse 15, this would probably be our tough text of the day, right? Uh, Yeah. Tough text. Question is, are dead Christians already with Jesus? And if so, how is it then, as Paul says, that they do not precede the living at Christ's return? What do you think? Yeah, and the, the reason this is a tough question, at least for me, is because we have texts that seem to indicate that when a person dies, they go be with Jesus. Um, Philippians 1, verse 23, 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 8, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, and to go and be with Jesus is better than to remain here in the in this earth and all that. And so um, I've thought about this a little bit, a couple of potential solutions that came to my mind. One is, I suppose it is possible that Jesus has taken Abraham's place. So instead of going to Abraham's side, we go to Jesus' side in the Hadean realm. Problem with that, of course, is Jesus is at the right hand of God. Now, right now, all right? So um, that's probably not very likely. Yep. Um, the one, the, the, the solution that I like is, I think this is shorthand, that, that language in Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, I, I think it's shorthand, it's an abbreviated way of saying all the afterlife events. Um, N.T. Wright calls it suitcase language, right? And so you, you have all... You have all your stuff in the suitcase, but the suitcase is closed until you open it and start unpacking all of it. Um, that's that's the idea, the, the shorthand, the abbreviated way of talking about all the afterlife events. After we go through the disembodied state in Hades and the final coming of Jesus and the judgment and everything that's uh, affiliated with all those various events, Paul takes for granted that all of that will happen in those texts. Um and so then we go and be with Christ, or we are at home with the Lord. Whereas in a text like this, here in First Thessalonians 4, here he is unpacking a bit more, um, opening the suitcase, as it were, and showing us, well, here's, here's what um, eschatology looks like. Here's what the end times look like and what we can expect when Jesus comes back. So that's, that's kind of where I fall with that. Um, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that second option you gave is certainly a possibility. I'm going to throw out a third possibility, and this is where I land right now. Uh, Kind of a simple solution. So basically, what I would say is that martyrs go to heaven right away and receive their new bodies as a reward for faithfulness, you know, to the extreme. You know, they died for their faith. Everyone else goes to paradise, Abraham's bosom, uh, the good part of Hades. So Paul had a pretty good idea that he was going to be martyred at some point. We get this from Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, uh, Philippians 2.17, 2 Timothy especially, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and 17 through 18. As for the uh, verses you mentioned, uh, Paul is in prison when he writes to the Philippians. So his statement about being with the Lord 
would make sense if he anticipated the possibility of a martyr's death at some time. Uh, maybe at that time when he was in prison, he didn't know. Uh, same thing happens in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that you mentioned, which starts out in verse 1 as saying that even if our earthly tent is torn down, we have a building in heaven that will be clothed with forever, which is clear language depicting our new bodies, but in this context, their earthly tents may be torn down, and that's martyr language. Uh, Revelation 6, you alluded to that in the previous question. Uh, those are martyrs who are in heaven under the altar of God. And what is their uh, consolation for uh, being martyred? Until And their question, you know, how long until you judge those uh, who have killed us and our brethren? How much longer until you do something, God? Well, they are given their new clothing as an answer. That's their white garments. In the clothing aspect, uh, that's stock language for our new bodies, resurrection bodies. And the white garments, those allude to the appearance of angels or heavenly beings. That's, that's again, stock language for, for that kind of body. And thus, uh, that describes the quality of their new bodies that they're getting. They're going to be like the angels. So I would say that uh, there are special rewards for the martyrs, uh, but otherwise everybody else goes to Hades. Unless, of course, you know, you were someone like Enoch or Elijah and you were taken up to heaven while still alive. But other than that, it's martyr or go to Hades. So that's, uh, I don't know, that's kind of the way I parse it all out at this moment in time anyway. You have any thoughts on that, Nick? I think we've upholstered that subject quite nicely as well. <laughs> All right, Nick. Um, verse 16, when Christ does return, it will be with the voice of an archangel. Now, our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, of course, uh, take this to mean that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Right. Um, yeah, not really. What What is an archangel, Nick, and why does one come at Christ's return? And so here's here's why Jesus can't be an archangel is because archangels, like all the other angels, are created beings, and Jesus is not a created being. He is 100% fully God. Our Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witness friends, um, do not believe that. Also, I think our Seventh Day Adventist friends um, hold a similar view, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so, that an archangel is uh, um, a, a created being, but they're there are apparently different ranks of angels. Um, and so, as best I can tell, there are two, there, there could be more, but two that I find in the Bible for um, classifications, distinctions between angels. You have your regular angels, just your rank-and-file angels. They function as messengers of God and do different things. Um, in the spiritual realm. And then there are archangels, and they appear to belong to a higher rank than just your rank-and-file angels. Uh, and Michael is hes the only named archangel in Scripture. Um, and so he seems to be... So arch, this archangel, if it is... Michael, he's the one who's leading the parade back, as it were, um, after the final victory. Christ coming to vanquish his final, the last enemy, which is death. Um, uh, 
so that's that's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Uh, well, you're exactly right, Nick. The only author to name an archangel is Jude. That's Jude uh, verse 9, and he says that's Michael. But uh, now that I think about it, Jude also quotes, though, from the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch also talks about Michael, the archangel. In fact, uh, the book of Enoch mentions that there are seven archangels yeah, that's in Enoch chapter 20, and there it says their names are Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, which I, I prefer Mikael, Sariel, uh, Gabriel, which I prefer Gabriel, and Remiel. Now that's interesting because uh, we do know of an angel named Gabriel from Daniel chapter 8 and 9 and Luke right. chapter 1. Right. And uh, speaking of the book of Daniel, Daniel 10, it also mentions Michael. And calls him one of the chief princes. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael also shows up in Revelation chapter 12. But we also know of Raphael from our study of the Apocrypha, specifically the book of Tobit. Now, if we're going to consider the Apocrypha, which I do, then it helps to remember 2nd Esdras, which we have not covered in the podcast yet. But in 2nd Esdras, it refers to an archangel uses that term archangel and names that archangel Jeremiel or um, probably more like Yeremiel, which is uh, very, very similar, probably a reference to that same angel in Enoch 20, Remiel. So, uh, in fact, you know, Second Estrus, it also mentions an angel named Uriel. So out of the seven archangels named in Enoch 20, we can locate at least five of them in the Bible with the Apocrypha, otherwise known as the Bible of the first century church uh, because of the Septuagint and all. Now, why is an archangel mentioned at the return of Christ? Because as seen in the last chapter, uh, 3.13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be all his holy ones, all who are loyal and fit for holy space, both angelic and human. So if any of the Thessalonians were concerned that they missed it, uh, don't worry. It'll be hard to miss with millions of angels <laughs> and loud trumpets right. and all. <laughs> you won't miss it. You won't miss yeah. it. So, so much for a silent rapture, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> invisible huh. return, right? It's like he's already right. invisible. What are you talking about? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, verse 17, this is where we see that... Uh, rapture language where they are caught up. Nick, does caught up mean that there will be a rapture? You know, this whole passage here, uh, 13 through 18, is talking about when Jesus comes back the final time. And when he does, he's going to judge the living and the dead. The dead being, of course, those who have fallen asleep. So, when Jesus comes back, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, when he comes back, then comes the end. So there's not this multiple or at least twofold return of Jesus where he comes the first time, stops midway in the air, and then goes back with, uh, well, with his saints, raptured out of the earth, as it were, and then seven years later, after the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist and all that, the Antichrist being, of course, a mysterious political figure coming out of a revived Roman Empire. Um, then Jesus comes back, and he actually sets foot on the Mount of Olives, and he 
that the Mount of Olives splits east to west and all that. Nope, nope. It's a highly elaborate eschatology, and it may pass for fiction. Not even good fiction at that, but <laughs> Ouch. that's all it is, is just fiction. Um, so instead, when Jesus returns... That's it. Both living saints and dead saints, they're gonna, we're gonna, all going to exchange our physical bodies for a spiritual body. It's going to be equipped for forever with the Lord, that kind of life that comes after the final coming. Um, conversely, those who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, have not obeyed the gospel, all that remains for them is wrath because they are still under their sins, and God's settled disposition towards sin is wrath. So, um, no, this uh, caught up here uh, does not ta- is not talking about a rapture, secret or otherwise. Um, uh, that's a, an unfortunate uh, understanding, an unfortunate parsing of things that just aren't there. Um, in fact... As I was studying this, um, what they do is they say First Thessalonians four is that first rapture coming. Rapture, by the way, coming from the Latin raptura, which is supposed to be in here. But I looked at my Vulgate; I couldn't find it. But I just may not know enough Latin to know what to look for. <laughs> um, and then First Corinthians fifteen is actually the the last coming the set the when jesus comes back and and all that that when the end comes and even then you still have like the millennial reign and i don't so it's it's highly complex very complicated but i believe that scripture presents a very simple eschatology jesus comes back finally that's it and judgment and then yeah we all go be with jesus um, or we spend eternity away from jesus Take that, dispensationalists. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree, man. It is some scriptural gymnastics mm. to tie together uh, everything that Tim LaHaye and other dispensationalists um, have made millions of dollars off of, by the way. So yep. it is a uh, multi-million dollar industry, the dispensational fantasy. So just good to remember, keep in mind. Uh, just happens to draw in a bigger crowd and make more money. Verse 17, Nick. Mm. Why do we meet Christ in the clouds, in the air? Uh, what about heaven? I, I think, for, so the short answer for me is Second uh, Peter 3.10. Everything's going to be burned up. Uh, this world is going out of business. It's going to be a fire sale. Eh, see what I did there? Um and so uh, that's yeah, that's <laughs> that's going to be it. And since the world is going out of business, not going to be here anymore. I think this physical reality is going to give way to that spiritual reality. Um, faith will become sight, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll go be with the Lord in the heavenly realms. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I th- well, okay. So in ancient cosmology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always got to bring back the ancient cosmology. All All right. right. Um, The sky, the clouds, the stars. uh, Biblically, those are all described as being in heaven. And so the heavenly places, they were unseen. 
They were invisible, but they also existed alongside with what we can see. Uh, heaven is spoken of as this layered place where God sits on top of, on his throne. And that's why the earth is called his footstool, by the way. If you want to think about it from the perspective of seeing the stars, uh, from an ancient astro-prophetic perspective, God's throne is in the north. It's, it's the north star. Because from Earth's perspective, the North Star never moves, but stays centered where all the other stars circle around it. Uh, that's also why the stars are called the heavenly hosts. In other words, we go to the sky because the sky is heaven. We just can't see heaven. But it's existing alongside what we can see, the clouds, the sky, the stars. You have to remember, ancient cosmology had no modern concept of billions of light years or the universe as we see it today. And so when they looked up, they thought they were looking up at heaven, of course, uh, believing that what we see was not all there was actually there in that space. But it wasn't, it wasn't billions of light years away. It was, it was just right up there. And so that's why Christ disappears in the clouds at his ascension, that's why we're going to meet him in the clouds, because that's heaven. However, Nick, you're right. The earth is going to be burned up. We talked about that in Second Peter 3, uh, in the old podcast. Ultimately, though, I think we are meant to inhabit a space where heaven and earth are one place, like Eden was in the beginning, because God was there, and so were his angels, for that matter. So, after the judgment, global Eden. That's what I think. Um... I don't know. Nick, any, anything you want to add to that? <laughs> um, also, I mean, you do have that uh, angelic prophecy in Acts chapter 1. He went up in the clouds in the same way he's going to come back. So right. prophecy fulfilled. Right, yeah. Um, last thing, okay. verse 18. Encourage one another with these words. Um, why would these words bring encouragement, Alex? Yeah, sometimes these words bring us confusion. Why would that bring them comfort? <laughs> I think in short, um, it would bring them comfort because they didn't miss out on anything because they can't. <laughs> Their loved ones are safe. We'll all get there together. Jesus will come back. We'll be rewarded. And the Lord will avenge us. That's it. Yep. Well, that brings us to our one-minute <clears throat> sermon. That's right. So Sunday's coming. Alex and I, were both preachers. We have a heart for preachers. And um, we want to just... Uh, take a moment and give all the preachers out there the a good start on their Sunday sermons. Um, so how it works, I have selected a song title. Alex doesn't know what it is. He has selected a song title. I don't know what, he, what it is. And we will give each other these songs, titles, and we must come up with a sermon, uh, the beginnings of a sermon um, with uh, an appropriate text and all that in one minute, so one-minute sermons. Um, I think I go first today, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for volunteering. All right. <laughs> uh, okay. Your song, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> Do you know how to is, uh, so we're going with pop culture today, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. She sings the song, Call Me Maybe. Hey, 
I just met you. This is crazy. Here's my number. Call me maybe. Call me maybe. One minute on the clock, Alex. And go. All right. Well, it's got to be something connected to the idea of prayer. Uh, You know, in the Old Testament, the uh, first time we see the phrase, someone is calling upon the name of the Lord, it's uh, a reference to Seth, who was a replacement for uh, his brother Abel, who was murdered by Cain. And so this idea of calling upon the Lord, um, it definitely involves prayer, it involves trust, it involves um, continued fidelity, and that is exactly what Peter calls the audience on the day of Pentecost to do, to call upon the name of the Lord. And he tells them how to do that. He says you need to repent, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We call upon the name of the Lord in baptism. We call upon him in our daily lives and prayer. We continue to call upon him if and if you will just trust in Jesus. Call One me minute maybe. exactly. Acts 2. <laughs> <clears throat> Bravo. All right. Woo. <laughs> I liked your karaoke, by the way. Uh, very, very soft and gentle. Uh, Carly, what's her name? Carly. Carly Ray Carly Jepsen. Ray there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh, pop songs, um, I'm going to dip back into, uh, I think, the 60s. Uh, was it the 60s when the Beatles came on Johnny Carson saying, sure I want to hold your hand? Um, that is going to be your song today, Nick, which you need to preach off of. The Beatles, I want to hold your hand, one-minute sermon. Uh, by the way, this is a cover. I forget who it is who originally wrote the song, but they didn't write it. Um, it was, there was a cover song. I was trying to find who originally wrote it, but hmm. people only know it from the Beatles. So there you go. I want to hold your hand, Nick, one-minute sermon, and go. All throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you get the figure, the image of it's anthropomorphic of God. He has his right hand, his mighty, his strong right hand. And that's a symbol of power. Uh, It's a symbol of authority. And it is the right hand of God that he he utilizes to save. It is not too short. Uh, It is not too weak. And so as I think about that hand and the might, the power that's behind it, I think that's a hand that I want to hold, that he calls us to uh, lean upon him, to trust in him, that he is powerful and that we can trust him with our lives, we can trust him with our world, and uh, he's the one who can sustain our lives, the one who can sustain even our world by his mighty right hand. And so, yeah, let's, let's hold that hand of God. And that's one minute. Good job, sir. <laughs> Beatles, man. There you go. I was thinking... Um, Glad you didn't give me Yellow Submarine. That would have been... <laughs> <laughs> <have> been tough. <laughs> yellow, yellow Submarine. Sermon on not doing drugs? That's the best I could come up with. <laughs> yeah, or Strawberry Fields, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah cool. I was thinking about... Uh, I want to hold your hand about when Jesus touches the leper, you know, touches the untouchable. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, all kinds. See, all kinds of connections that you could make in your preaching, in your teaching, in your evangelism. 
as you have conversations with coworkers and neighbors. You can start out with those pop culture references and tie it into the gospel. See, it's not that hard. We do it every week. (laughs) (laughs) Off the top of our heads. There you go. No preparation. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can do it too. Well, that's it this week for Swordplay, Nick. You have any final thoughts? Go into either the Google Play Music Store or the iTunes Store and search Swordplay. You'll find the podcast there. You can download episodes to your particular device. You can share it on social media. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. All right. And if you have questions that you would like us to answer, either via email or on the podcast, send those to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, I think that wraps it up for today. Next week we'll finish First Thessalonians, uh, end with Chapter 5, and then we'll move on to our next book. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.